Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 18th, 2022, and my guest is Mike Munger of Duke University here for his 43rd appearance on EconTalk. Mike, welcome back. It is such a pleasure as always, Russ. Thank you. Our topic for today is industrial policy. Uh, and our conversation will be based on a recent article you've published in the Journal of Law, Economics, and Policy that we will link to. Uh, but let's start with a basic definition. When people talk about industrial policy, what do you think they have in mind today? And it may have changed over time, It's but it's a very popular topic. What do people have in mind? Well, if you do nothing, you still have an industrial policy in the sense that there's a set of things that are going to happen and your policy of honoring profit and loss is a policy. What people mean by industrial policy, though, is a set of decisions about what industries to invest in, what industries to discourage, what tax policies to have to encourage uh, investment that we think is beneficial to the entire society. So industrial policy is not macroeconomic policy. Industrial policy is the set of conditions in which a market economy operates. And I think it is possible to talk about that as being the entire set of uh, legal and financial infrastructure within which the economy plays out. And most people, when they're advocating for it, are, are unhappy with some aspect of what you call the, and I think we should call the profit and loss system. Neither of us are anarchists. We're not talking about unfettered capitalism run rampant. We're talking about allowing profits and losses, given the legal structure, profit and loss to determine which industries survive, which fail, which expand, which contract. Uh, and of course, throughout history, and certainly today in the United States and elsewhere, people often don't like uh what the profit and loss system produces and think it can be improved on. And that's, I think, advocates of industrial policy argue that steering outcomes, either through the tax and, and subsidy policies you, you alluded to, or more explicitly uh, through trade policy or other limitations, uh, achieve different outcomes. And, and what are some of the things people are concerned about? What's the argument that the people who, who don't like the profit and loss system, what, what are they going to argue? Well, the, let's, let's start by making it clear what the profit and loss system actually entails, because I find a surprising number of people don't know the basic argument for capitalism. And so let, let's, let me spend one minute on that. So the Ludwig von Mises probably was the clearest articulator of the system of profit and loss as a uh, industrial policy. But there was a, a book on the 
uh, on industry, on industrial economics by uh, Mary Paley Marshall and Alfred Marshall that was published in the 1890s that I think is the first clear articulation of industrial policy. And it goes like this. So if I am a producer, if I decide I want to produce something, I go around and I make I enter into a bunch of voluntary contracts with the owners of inputs. So owners of labor, owners of steel, owners of electricity, owners of wood. And I make a voluntary contract with each of those people. And since they're not obliged to contract with me, it must by definition be true, not only that they're better off, but they're better even than their opportunity cost uh, alternatives for selling those products. So all of those people are happy. I now go and I put these things together in some kind of form that I think consumers will like. And there's actually a specific test because consumers only buy that if they actually want it. And so again, every transaction I engage in in the output market, each consumer who buys it is made better off because they're not obliged to buy my product. Just as the input suppliers were not obliged to sell it to me in the output market, they're not obliged to buy this product. So every one of them is made better off by what economists call the amount of consumer surplus. And in some cases, that might be very large. Now, their question is, is this a good activity or not? Because so far, I've made a bunch of people better off. Is this a socially desirable activity? And the answer, according to this the profit and loss idea is that there's a particular price in a capitalist system, which is I compare the amount of revenue that I get from consumers and I compare that to the cost of what it took me to make the thing. And if my revenue exceeds my cost, we call that particular price a profit. And that profit is an indication that this activity is socially valuable. Now, there's a bunch of problems with that argument, but that in, in the main is I have produced benefits for all the input suppliers. I have produced benefits for all of the uh, consumers in the output market. And I have created some benefit for myself in the form of profit. It is a signal. If those profits are significant, it is a signal to other holders of resources in the society that they should either enter into this industry and produce more, or if they're already in the industry, that they should increase the amount of output because at the margin, this activity is more socially beneficial than other opportunity cost activities. Yeah, just a couple footnotes there that obviously you could buy my product and decide you don't like it. You wanted it. You thought it was going to be a good product and you find out you don't like it. So you might be able to sell it once, but to continue to sell it to be what we would say in English is a going concern, very strange uh, phrase, meaning an on a business that is sustained, a sustainable business has to cover its costs. And it has to cover its costs with enough extra, doesn't have to be a huge amount, but enough extra to make it worthwhile for me to continue to spend my time combining those inputs to do so. If, the, if that happens, uh, there's a net gain, say economists, to, to the society and uh, the business continues. If, however, the profits are not large enough to cover the costs, I can't make payroll after a while, or I can't pay for my raw inputs, and I disappear. I go out of business. So that's the, and, and I just want to add, you know, Milton Friedman liked to say that capitalism is a profit and loss system, and he liked to emphasize the loss. 
uh, in that conversation because if you make losses, you can make them for a while. You can borrow money to try to keep your business afloat. But if you continue to make losses, usually you're done. And no one has to make up. There's no vote. No board has to decree whether you should be sustained or not. It's over. And that is a very powerful system that underlies uh, what you and I think of as capitalism. So what's wrong with it? That's what's, that sounds great. Well, we make it sound as if it's kind of smoothly functioning. And I emphasized profit. And I sort of talked about shrinking or growing at the margin. But in fact, if you look at the Schumpeterian version of this, it actually may involve violent and wrenching changes, creative destruction. And so workers who work in some industry may find themselves out of a job through no fault of their own because the business they were employed by uh, not only failed to make profits, but started making losses and investors pulled their money out of this industry and the business had to close. And so through no fault of their own, people are unemployed and that just seems unfair. So the, the, it is, it, it, it is, is it is absolutely <laughs> unfair because yeah. they did not deserve this. And I've actually written a few things about the, the question of dessert uh, that is deserving is too high a standard because we, we, what we, what we have created in a capitalist system is what you might call legal entitlements. And a legal entitlement it means that if I earn profits, I am entitled to keep them, even if in some sense I got lucky. Now, the question is, what are the entitlements of workers who lose their jobs through no fault of their own? And we've actually created, as part of our industrial policy, a set of government programs to make it easier. We call it trade adjustment assistance, unemployment. That's actually part of an industrial policy also in the sense that people who lose their jobs get assistance from the government precisely because it wasn't really their fault. Now, they don't get their old salaries, usually. They don't get their old salaries completely given back to them, but it, it reduces the, the cost of participating in a capitalist system. The, the reason that I wanted to start with my sort of stripped-down version of profit and loss without any other government policies is usually what we say is, oh, that company's making giant profits and they don't deserve those. The argument really is the benefit to input suppliers and the benefit to consumers. How would you measure those? Well, they're literally unmeasurable. We can't possibly measure consumer surplus. And this is something that we've talked about before on this show. What is the benefit to having iPhones? Well, People would pay a lot more, for, even though they're really expensive, people would pay a lot more for the iPhone than it actually costs them. Some of them would probably pay $10,000. So the, it costs $1,000. That's a benefit to the consumer, just that one consumer of $9,000. But we can't measure that. What we can measure is profits. So the, the difficulty with the system of profit and loss is that once you account for what are called market failures, then profits are neither necessary nor sufficient for saying that this is a socially beneficial activity. Profits are neither necessary nor sufficient for saying it's a socially beneficial activity. And I'll just put that into English, if I may. Once you start worrying about what are called market failures, and we'll talk about those in a second, profit is not a really good measure of whether a business deserves to be sustained or not. 
So you need some, you want, you might want to bring in a different measure, say the critics. That's the, that's their worry. Right. But the necessary and sufficient part is important in the sense that if I tell you that a company is earning profits, it doesn't mean it's socially beneficial. And if I tell you that a company is making losses, it doesn't mean it should be closed. And so that means that neither of the two supposed signals is correct. And we need government action to put a thumb on the scale one way or the other is the argument for industrial policy. Correct. Okay, so let's hear some of the arguments that these uh, critics would would invoke to argue why the profit or the loss is an insufficient signal. Well, we, you hinted at one a minute ago. It, it could cause disruption in employment, and therefore we should soften that. And some would argue more than soften it. You would that was just one example of how you how government policy might respond to it. So the. The usual set of market failures are not at the core of the argument for industrial policy. So let's put those to the side because those are a justification for regulation. So asymmetric information, um, public goods, externalities, all of those things are reasons why we have regulatory agencies. So let's put those to the side. The reason for an industrial policy is that we get changes over time that are bad that we should limit. And we fail to get changes over time that would have been good that we should focus a fire hose of public infrastructure or investment because the market gets wrong what we should invest in. And then there's also social programs. So it's not just that the mix of investment is incorrect from the perspective of what economists tend to think of as an omniscient, benevolent dictator. And so usually the the government's problem is to say, here's the set of socially optimal investments. And then we look at the actual pattern of investments, and then we try to at least reduce the divergences between actual investment in the market And the socially optimal ones, which the bureaucrat, as the omniscient benevolent dictator, actually knows. And so so many times, if you're in an economics job talk or seminar, they'll start out by saying, well, we're going to assume the existence of an omniscient benevolent dictator and then ask, what is the correct tax policy? What is the correct set of subsidies for industry? So we know the answer because we can study optimality and efficiency. And then the question is, how can we reduce the distance between what's actually in the world and that pattern? So the sort of things that matter are employment, stability in employment, um, the concern for things like the environment writ large. So we're investing too much in fossil fuels and not enough in alternative energies. And so we're going to subsidize investments in alternative energies, electric vehicles, solar panels, and bring the power, the, the cost of those things down. And just to look at that example, you know, for a minute, because I think your point about regulatory policy versus industrial policy is is helpful. Um, Many would argue that we overinvest in fossil fuels. So what we need to do is, say, subsidize uh, maybe research into electric battery performance rather than relying on market-based efforts by people like uh, by companies like Tesla and others, we should put our thumb on the scale and, and maybe have a government lab 
design a better battery because the profit and loss incentive is too slow. Uh, people tell me that it's just a matter of time before we have uh, profitable battery, electric batteries uh, in different sizes and quantities than we currently do better. And so we should we should spend the, a large sum of money now to get there quicker because it's better for the environment is the argument. Of course, these arguments are often more complicated than we're talking. We're going to get to some of the complications, but that would be the argument that the that the this, the acquisitive, acquisitive nature of humanity is not sufficient to speed up the innovation process in a particular area, or the opposite. We need to slow something down that's that's aggressively expanding, and so we need a tax or or uh, some kind of regu- regulatory restriction. Those restrictions are usually different than the regulatory kind that, that we normally would talk about in in a, in, a, in public policy. These are specifically designed I, – the, the distinction I would make, these are dis- specifically designed to either increase or impede the flow of capital into certain areas of the economy that left to the profit and loss motive would do so either too slowly, too quickly, not at all. Or should be ended. Um, and so what industrial policy is often trying to do is not so much tax this and subsidize that, although it does involve that sometimes, but more to make sure that certain ind- industries are thriving that are under-invested in or are curtailed that are over-invested in if the only signals are profit and loss. Is that a good summary? It's a good summary. And the reason I want to emphasize what you said, the over and the under is with reference to what is known to be correct by the, omni- the omniscient, benevolent bureaucrat. So that the, a central figure here is we know what is to be done. We know the correct thing to do because we are scientists. And that's an essential feature of the claims for industrial policy. The, the basis of we can do better is we know what is good. And, and sometimes there's an, a logical what we might call an analytical argument, which might be uh, corporate America has the wrong time preference. Corporate America operates on a quarter-to-quarter profitability. We need a longer-term perspective. Uh, It's not going to come from capitalists. It's going to come, trying not to smile, it's going to come from politicians or policymakers or bureaucrats who will not be constrained by the stock market's insistence on quarterly profits. And we'll, in a minute, we'll talk about why that's hard to say with a straight face, but that would be the argument, right? That would be the, the claim. And that's not, I know what's best. Literally, it's, I detect a, a, a flaw in the underlying structure of the profit loss system. It's short-sighted. It's myopic. Or it might be, uh, uh, what would be another, I can't have trouble thinking of another example that would be sort of, uh, analytical rather than pretending to know exactly what, what needs to get done. Well, so another... the, the, the time horizon is certainly an important one. And another... Oh, the environment. The environment is, is... Climate change. Yeah. Now, that you could say that's time horizon also, but yeah, it, it is different. different. Kind. Yeah. So the, what you just said is great because I think a, a listener commented on one of our earlier podcasts and says, Munger just has this trope that he always uses. And that's true. I didn't realize that I do. But what I always say is, this is a really hard problem. I thought about it for a long time, and I realized I was wrong. 
And in fact, this is the way you should think about this. And damn it, I'm going to do that again. So the, the story that you just gave is the one that I always told. Because you say it's hard to say with a straight face politicians are going to do this. That's the usual public choice objection. And so, in fact, when I teach public choice, I say there's this nonsense that somehow capitalism is a shorter time horizon. Look, elected officials have a two-year time horizon until the next election, and that's in November. So, the, you know, in December, they have a 23-month a, a time horizon. So politics has a really, really short time horizon. And that's why these people who advocate for an industrial policy, they're all wet. All they need to do is read basic public choice. And the, we would stop hearing about all this nonsense. So we're really lucky at Duke to have such great uh, history of economic thought people. So Bruce Caldwell and Steve Metema. Now, Steve Metema is a student, among other things, of uh, A.C. Pagu, Arthur Cecil Pagu. We don't, we don't hear Cecil enough, so I think that's important. Yeah, I'm right. <laughs> um, now, if you look at Pagu's writing, uh, as early as 1912, Pigou was talking about the fact, and I think I think I can quote it. Uh, this is while you're, while you're looking for it, I'll just Pigou is P I G O U for those of you googling at home. Go ahead. So the the, the usual story, and the, the I don't want to go into this too much, but Steve Metema has a particular bone to pick with one of my heroes, Ronald Coase. And I think he's right. Ronald Coase just mischaracterizes Pigou's thought in the 1960 paper, uh, The Problem of Social Cost. So the, the Pigouvian solution that Coase talks about is we're going to solve the problem of externalities with a system of taxes on negative externalities and subsidies on positive externalities. That's not really an industrial policy, as we said. Because that's on the output. It's not subsidizing investment. Investment policy is subsidizing or taking away investment. This is a tax on the output price for externalities. And Coase said that Pugu said this was the only way to solve this problem and that we had enough information to do it. In fact, if you look at Pugu's writings, and so wealth and, wealth and welfare, this is 1912. It is not sufficient to contrast the imperfect adjustments of unfettered private enterprise with the best adjustments that economists in their studies can imagine. For we cannot expect that any state authority will attain or even wholeheartedly seek that ideal. Such authorities are liable alike to ignorance, to sectional pressure, and to personal corruption by private interest. A loud voice part of their constituents, if organized for votes, may easily outweigh the whole. Now, that's 1912. So, this, Pagu is actually an urtext of public choice. And so, yeah. after golfing with Steve Metema, I went back and looked at the history of industrial policy, advocates for industrial policy. And I was just wrong. It is not that they misunderstand the problem of political incentives. That's actually their primary concern. The reason that they think industrial policy may not work is the set of incentives that distort industrial policy politically. 
So it's not that they're saying, oh, we'll just do this and it won't be a problem. They recognize that politics are going to distort industrial policy. So the reason that I wrote this paper was that in 2000, I had come up with uh, the idea of policy conflicts. So my notion of this, and so that it, it forms a triangle, the vertices are markets, politics, and experts. And my claim in that 2000 book was that policies always seem strange if you look from the outside because it seems like they're just not rational. Well, the answer is they're a conflict. They're a compromise between two of the vertices of this triangle. So markets and politics fight things out. Experts and markets have antitrust policy. Experts and politics have a, a variety of constitutional concerns. And so nobody, none of these sources of legitimate authority ever get exactly what they want. So experts, if they're going to try to regulate markets, have to deal with politics. But this actually had been a core insight of the people who had advocated for industrial policy all along. And so the question then is, what is the correct, if, if, if there is an objection to industrial policy, what is the correct objection? And so I went back to the work of William Riker and the sort of equilibrium theorists in the political science branch of public choice and came up with, and that's the reason the title of the paper, a good industrial policy is impossible. So it is impossible to come up with a coherent way to solve the political problem. So that recognizing the problem is not enough. The, the people who advocate for industrial policy actually have, the, the, I, I claim this is a kind of impossibility theorem. It is impossible to achieve the expert's goal for an industrial policy in a democracy. Now, it is possible in a dictatorship, but presumably that's not what, being, what is being advocated for. So the, the difficulty that has happened all along for the people who favor industrial policy, and if you look at industrial policy in the 30s under the Roosevelt administration, there was a lot of admiration for Mussolini, for fascism. And the reason is that it was insulated from politics. Now, not the political program of fascism, but the insulation from politics of experts. And the plus c'est chance, plus c'est les mêmes choses. Uh, here we are in the modern era. And of course, for the last, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years, 25 years, people have admired China because it does not, many of its policies uh are seen as admirable and impossible in the United States because we have the meat-grinding, um, sausage-making political system we have, whereas in China, they don't have to worry about that. They've got uh, autocrat, an autocrat at the top who can just listen to experts and do the right thing, where the right thing is presumably what's good for China as a whole. Right, because, that because there, are political, there, there are political problems in democracies at arriving at that. Public choice people, I was taught, say, oh, well, industrial policy will fail because of uh, political incentives. What I have always thought is that the devastating public choice response to claims that we should have an industrial policy is just to point out that political incentives are going to prevent us from having any kind of good industrial policy. And in fact, famously in the, the Keynes-Hayek rap video, part two, um, 
Hayek said, with political incentives, discretion's a joke. Those dials you're twisting just mirrors and smoke. And so the, 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 the point of that is that politics are going to distort industrial policy, and so we shouldn't even talk about it. Now, the answer of people, and I think the, the best in the paper I single out as I think the best articulate and most logically coherent advocate for industrial policy is Danny Roderick. And he says that there are two core problems. One is the problem of incentives, and the other is the problem of information. And the, in reading the historical development of this, the sort of Cambridge economics, and it's, it's interesting that it's Cambridge on both sides of the ocean, and so you can use it. The, the Cambridge description is whether it's actually Cambridge or whether it's Harvard and MIT, but that form of macroeconomics worries both about the information and the incentives problem. And Roderick points out, probably rightly, that we should think of the information problem in terms of tatonement. Because in economics, tatonement is trial and error. We look for the equilibrium. We grope for it. And Roderick said that the government should do the same thing. The fact that the government doesn't really know what to do in advance is not a problem. We need to experiment. And in fact, the more mistakes the government makes, the better, because that's a sign we're actually experimenting robustly. And then Roderick... Get more information. Well, the, the A-B testing, where you did experiments maybe within local school districts, that where the districts are otherwise pretty similar, this is something you've talked about on the show a number of times. That's one thing. But experiments at the macro level, where you have just a sequence of unexpected, unexplained changes in taxes and investment, those are not experiments. Those are the sort of things that Amity Schles talked about in The Forgotten Man as being one of the reasons why the uh, Great Depression the, 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 the lasted for so long. Because we were never sure what the industrial policy was going to be. Those are not experiments. That's uncertainty. That's a different thing. But, but okay, Danny Roderick says, neither markets nor government know what they would need to do to carry out the functions we assign to them. We need to understand that government can do experiments. We should try things. And then we should be willing to admit, you know, bureaucracies, once they're established, they're hard to get rid of. That we need to work on. But the, what motivated me to write this paper was what Danny Roderick said about institutions. He said, this is just a simple problem of institutional design. And as a longtime political scientist, I do want to thank economists for the amusement value that they provide us in saying these things are just simple problems of institutional design. We'll just change the Constitution and put the regulatory authorities for industrial policy beyond the reach of politics, as if that were something that we could just have a meeting or we'll have a committee, we'll have a group, and we'll all agree, and then we'll do the right things. Well, my claim is that's not the way that it works. So the it is... The, the, the frame of this paper, the logical frame of this paper, is that I concede for the sake of argument, that is, I grant the premise that 
markets and government have about the same informational capacities. That the tatonomon process for government is we'll try we'll have trial and error. Okay, we actually know what the right thing to do is. The question is, even then, will the government do it? And the answer I try to give is no. And I should just say, we haven't said this because we've talked too many times on this program. And though there are at least 12 or 15 people who've heard every appearance of Mike Mongroni on talk, all 42 before this one. In fact, I think there are thousands of people who've heard all 42. For those who haven't, um, it's important to point out that the the usual argument that people on our side of the fence make is that, sure, capitalism is flawed, but before you can invoke government as an alternative, you have to remember that government is flawed too. And that's the essence of what you're calling the public choice argument. What you're saying now is, which is a good question, isn't it possible that the flawed government solution will be better than the flawed profit and loss system, which of course it is. That's possible. And I think that's Roderick's claim. Roderick's claim, to put it in its best light, is that, okay, markets grope imperfectly toward various outcomes. They, we make, we, not we, firms mistakenly invest in some things. Resources flow into those areas. They turn out to not be profitable. And that, those resources are lost and markets adjust accordingly. And so government could do the same thing. Government could. There may be a scorekeeping issue, which we're going <laughs> to we're going to deal with in a minute. But in theory, governments could learn, react, change, and so on. And then the debate would be: Well, which one's more nimble? Which one is more flexible? Which, more importantly, under which system are there incentives for the actors to improve on their performance? And the the Roderick answer that you've just caricatured a little bit. But his attempt to answer that question is, well, it's true there could be some problems with the incentives facing the the political actors. So we just need to give them a different set of incentives. Uh, Milton Friedman, by the way, makes the same argument. Uh, He says, you know, the challenge of good public policy is not uh, getting better people into office. It's to give the people who are elected the incentive to do the right thing. And that's just a different way of saying institutional design. And in your point as putting on your political science hat, is, uh, well, that's a huge problem. But where does that leave us? So, so I, I'm tr- that was just to try to help listeners figure out where we are. What's the, um, or do you think Roderick's wrong? Okay, so it's hard to do. Is he, or would you argue he's wrong? That, that uh, would you argue that industrial policies are mistakes? And on what grounds? That is the perfect way to set up the question. So let me first address, I think it is fair to say many people will think I am caricaturing Roderick's position. So let me read what he said. So I contend that the information claim is largely irrelevant. Well, the second about political influence can be overcome with appropriate institutional design. Good industrial policy does not rely on the government's omniscience or ability to pick winners. 
mistakes are an inevitable and necessary part of a well-designed industrial policy. In fact, too few mistakes are a sign of underperformance. So he said the problem, end quote. End quote. He said that the problem of political influence can be solved with appropriate institutional design. And he actually does propose that we have a committee that is appointed by experts that is not politically accountable. So what is wrong with, you said it's hard. I want to grant his claim. I want to grant two things. First, that the experts that that committee would appoint do in fact know what industrial policy should be, and it would be better than markets. I'm not sure that's true, but let's, for the sake of argument, grant that. They know what to do, and if they were allowed to implement it, they would be able to improve, perhaps dramatically, on the set of outcomes that we observe just from the profit and loss industrial policy that comes ready-made with capitalism. And then my argument is it is impossible for that policy to be implemented. And so I actually use a bit of formal theory and social choice theory to try to prove this. And I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but I, I posit the existence of three alternative states of the world. One, the one that would be delivered by letting laissez-faire investment in markets with the background of regulatory uh, agencies like the EPA, the Federal Trade Commission. So we have the regulatory agencies whose job it is to limit the effects of market failures. The second one is the set of outcomes that we would observe if this industrial policy committee composed of our best minds um, were allowed to impose its will beyond the control of majoritarian democracy. And the third is the result that we will get in a majoritarian democracy with industrial policies that are in large measure, an attempt to benefit concentrated corporate and labor interests. So those are the three alternatives. What would you get from markets? What would you get from this expert industrial policy committee? And what would you get from politics? And the third one, I just want to emphasize, because you say this in the paper, it's really important. Um, it, it, it's what we might call cronyism. It, it's I have it's called the, it that. Yeah, it's, yeah, well, generous uh it's the it's capitalism in a democracy which is imperfect it's not the capitalism you and i would want because we're experts we have we have a we want <clears throat> we want real capitalism well that's not available in a democracy it doesn't seem to happen this is one of the other times when i said i was wrong because i used to defend capitalism but then i realized capitalism in a democracy tends towards cronyism. And so I wrote that book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? And we had a podcast about it. And a bunch yes, of did. people were mad at me about this. Yes. So now this is the other shoe. So, is so but let's, re let's just hang on. I just want to review. So we've got capitalism, which is the capitalism you and I love, which is uh, a bit of a unicorn in a democracy. We have, quote, real uh Pragmatic capitalism, the capitalism that results when it interfaces with democracy, which tends to pick some favorites among politically powerful groups, 
reward them for reasons that most of us would say is they're disgusting. Uh, it bails out Wall Street losers. It does all kinds of things. Uh, it subsidizes big agriculture. These are things you and I oppose. Our voices don't get heard. We're not politically important. And so the capitalism we observe in the world around us is cronyism. And the third is this wonderful ideal. So we have our first ideal, my ideal with yours, which is, quote, the capitalism of our of our dreams. Then there's the capitalism that exists in a democracy. Then there's this other ideal, this other utopian, unicornian ideal, which is the industrial outcomes that a committee of experts would choose unfettered by politics. You're, is that fair? Is that the three things? It is not because you are calling me out on a trick that I try to slip in. So the trick that I try to slip in is I'm not assuming market perfection. What I'm assuming is fair enough. This is the 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 capitalist outcome is what you would get if you said, you know, industrial policy is not going to work. We're not going to have an industrial policy and we're not going to open this up to political incentives that lead us toward cronyism. We're just going to do profit and loss. Yes. And so with, with all the pure problems, profit and loss. Pure profit and loss with all the, the, the warts, the system that we have now, which is not pure profit and loss, cronyism. But is cronyism. And then this other alternative dream of the progressive movement, which is a committee of experts who would, unfettered by politics, steer capitalism of profit and loss toward a better world. And let's suppose that it is true that the expert industrial policy would be socially better than the system of unfettered profit and loss. Yeah, I hate that because I don't know what better means, but I'm going to let you do that. Let's grant it. Let you wave, let's I'm, wave I, your hands. I'm, and, yeah. I, I am not saying that we know what better means. I'm not saying that people would have that information. I'm saying let's grant those. Even then, it's impossible. So why? In 1980, William Riker published uh, one of the most important papers I think ever written in political science about the heritability of disequilibrium. So usually the problem, the story that we get about the lack of equilibrium in democratic politics is a derivation of the arrow theorem. And the simpler version of this is something like Condorcet's paradox, where if you have three alternative and fundamental disagreements, and we've talked about that before on the show, so the, I'm not going to get down in the weeds about it now. But if you have difficulty agreeing among three alternatives, then one solution might be, well, we'll just have institutions. And so we'll choose an institution that will allow us to solve this problem. Riker said, if... Whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. For people who don't go back and listen, there are three alternatives, and you just constantly are voting between two of them, say, and you're constantly choosing one that then is defeated by the third you didn't pick the other time. And so it leads to a lot of instability. Rock, paper, and scissors. So one the, it is rock, paper, rock, scissors. Yeah, exactly. And so the way to avoid that uh, inherent instability in a democracy could be to put up a set of weird institutions, committees and subcommittees and – and that, that, that will prevent that from happening. Yeah. And so democracy in real life is um, a little bit ugly, but it does at least – avoid this worse problem of instability. And Riker said, think about that. So you've got these groups that can't agree. And then you say, ah, but we'll propose this institution. 
Well, these are smart legislators. They can look down the agenda tree. And the claim is that institutions will produce an outcome. So when if I vote for or against an institution, say committees or a two-party system or things that are restrictions on the ability of this unfettered democracy to work, then I will look down the agenda tree and I say that institution produces an outcome that I, the politician, don't like. It means that I'll have a harder time getting reelected. So I will vote against the institution based on the outcome that it will produce. And so institutions cannot be a solution. Now, institutions might be imposed for some other reason. But the, the, the claim that, you know, we've got instability, we have problems with democracy, all we need is a better institutional design, will be voted down by the legislature because there will be a, a majority opposed to it precisely because they don't like that outcome. Yeah, the problem I have with all these models, by the way, is that it does re- require some certainty to the future. Uh, yeah, all it requires is fact, expectations. That th- this is right, actually expectations. Pretty, this is pretty simple. Yeah, but it's complicated because there's more than one round. Things are going to change. You're not going to um, like this. You're not going to like my next point then, because basically <laughs> all I do is port Riker over to the industrial policy. So the point is, politicians will not vote for the expert's outcome. The, the, by, the premise was that that's politically impossible. We have to insulate it from democracy. So we bring in this institutional solution and say, you know what? We're going to save you. All you have to do is vote for this committee that will put industrial policy beyond the power of you to control them. Will you vote for that? And hell no, I won't vote for that. I won't yeah, vote for enough. that. I won't vote for that outcome. Why would I vote for that institution? And they, yeah, can, they can see far enough down the agenda tree to know what that outcome is. It's an outcome they don't want. I, I just want to mention, by the way, that um, in this week's Econ Talk, uh, where we talk about inflation in Argentina, uh, one uh, listener, Shalom Friedman, and I'm sure there are many others, said, well, why doesn't Argentina – don't they realize how horrible it is to have high inflation for so long? And like, why haven't they figured that out? And the answer is they have. Yeah, I they're not done. Clear. Since I got, we had one, I had one sentence on it, so it's not surprising that people didn't hear it. Because as an economist and somebody who thinks about these issues like you and I do, it's 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 not doesn't require a lot of verbiage. But the to spell it out a little bit more. They prefer the world of high inflation with all of its horrors. They, the politicians. The the politicians, because even though it's bad for the country, they think there's something that's worse. And that worst thing is not having any money for the government because they have a really bad tax system. They don't have good compliance. They don't have a way to enforce tax compliance. They don't have a way, a culture that encourages people to pay their taxes. So they've decided that the easiest way for them to raise money is to print it, which comes with a terrible cost. But so does not having an army, say, or whatever else they spend the money on. Now, it could be they're wrong. They made a mistake. But in general, we, my starting point would be that they've looked, they've thought about it, right? And it's not simply they just don't realize what's happening. I assume they really do. That. I'm embarrassed. I listened to that podcast yesterday, and that sh- <laughs> I should have I should have started with that example because that's perfect. 
That is exactly the same logic. So if you have a and and therefore, if some politician says, let's pass a law that limits the printing of money in our country. So we'll get rid of this scourge of inflation. They're not going to vote for it. (laughs) And if and if you passed an institutional reform saying we're going to have an independent central bank whose job it will be to prevent the printing of money, that institutional reform also would not pass. Even though it's true that experts in Argentina know for a fact it would be better for the society if they wouldn't do it. So the, it, I have goosebumps So how perfect that example is. It is precisely the same logic. So the, there, there's no question. Experts know what to do. So we're, we've, I've granted that premise, and it's right. And if you go to the legislature and say, you should be so grateful, I have solved your problem. <laughs> All we have to do is have a set of experts that will be independent from your control and will have will will solve this problem in no time. It probably wouldn't get 10 votes. There is an interesting question about time consistency. And this is usually that is what the what benefits me right now is different from what benefits me in the long run. And so we have just discussed what's usually given as the rationale for having an independent central bank. And so the the claim was, for example, that the Federal Reserve would be an independent central bank. Members would be opposed, would be appointed to seven-year terms. And so they're beyond uh, legislative control. As my friend uh, and co-author Kevin Greer has written, it's clear that the Federal Reserve actually is very conscious of the activities of the House Ways and Means Committee. They're not beyond political control. It's only so long as they do what the Congress wants that we will see in equilibrium. The the Federal Reserve will not be uh, attacked by the legislature, but it is not true that they could do anything that they wanted. Argentina does not have anything like an independent central bank, and uh, they could pass it. Somebody could propose it. Uh, something, and the, you know, they could also, you know, that's that's right. That's the, that's the right idea. Wouldn't happen for just the reason that you say. It is actually politically much worse. They have no other means of raising money, and being able to have an army and being able to pay off all of the Peronista. Uh, union workers that the government depends on to keep getting reelected, it, it's it's politically impossible. So I want to make exactly that same Rikerian argument that you can't solve a policy problem with an institutional change because if you won't pass the policy, you won't pass the institution. So I'm going to give you my version of um, this kind of flawed utopian design. So what we need is a different culture of tax compliance in Argentina. So it's not, it's not a problem. We don't need different institutions. We need a different culture. If we could just get Argentinians to pay the, the taxes that are on the, on the, that are legislated. And in fact, let's do it totally voluntary. We don't, we don't need any tax compliance, but our culture will be so strong that, that that will be sufficient to destroy the incentive for inflationary monetary policy, and Argentina will be a better place. So, quote, all we need to do is to inculcate in Argentinians... Education. We just need education. Yeah, to explain to them the virtues of paying your taxes promptly to the to the penny, to the peso, 
and uh, everything will be fine. I think there's a lot of things that Argentinians would laugh at, but that's definitely one. Yep. That, that, that you're going to go and explain, you know, all you need to do is pay your taxes and it'll be great. Uh, sure. Uh, no one else pays their taxes either. I had a student once who did a comparison of the tax compliance cultures between Chile and Argentina. And uh, in Chile, everybody pays their taxes, 98%. And if you don't, you're really seen. It's not just that you're going to be arrested, but it's embarrassing. And in Argentina, maybe 50%, probably not. So Argentina had the idea of we're going to increase tax compliance. And so they had a bunch of uh, soccer players, football players, and famous actresses from the telenovelas. And they, they, were, they were on TV saying, you should pay your taxes. They had to pull the ads within a week because none of the actors had paid their taxes. It turns out that they did some investigation. The football players hadn't paid their taxes. The, so it, 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 the whole thing was a giant joke. And I'm not sure that the football players didn't sort of enjoy being in on the joke from the beginning because of course you don't pay your taxes. Only a chump pays your taxes. So there's two different equilibria there. And you can't move from one to the other unless everybody moves at the same time. No, you could do it in a journal article. You, you don't need to. <laughs> now you're just being mean. You're just being mean yeah. to Danny Roderick. Not to Danny. No, no, no. I'm being mean to myself. You know, I'm just going to assume a can opener. A little inside joke about inside jokes. But the, the but this is, a, uh, I think, a theme of, of a number of our recent conversations, Mike, where we concede – at least I'm conceding here, and I don't know if you want to concede, but I want to concede here that you know some of my ideas for how to make the world a better place that I think of as realistic, and I make fun of my my intellectual opponents about the unrealistic nature of their their improvements. We're all kind of on the same page, <clears throat> and it reminds me of the way George Stigler and Milton Friedman used to differ in their view of the world. Milton Friedman was quixotic. He believed that he would make arguments for what he considered good policy, and he would often be unheard, unnoticed, un, unresponded to. And George Stigler would just laugh and say, uh, it's a circus. You don't study it to make it better. You, it's entertainment. So Stigler looked at the political world and said, I'm not naive I don't think that this can be improved because of the kind of issues that you and I have been talking here. Friedman said, I, I don't know what Friedman said literally, but I think he said, um, I'm doing what I can. And, and, I, and for me, even though I just made fun of my view about culture, you know, part of the reason I like the idea of econ talk is that I think <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I think it actually could improve discourse and conversation about controversial things. And I mean, is there anything more naive than that? And, and the answer is maybe not, but you know, maybe there's two or three people listening who are, who learned something or two or 300 or two or 3000. It's still a small number in the world population, but I'm doing my part. I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to do. And I'll let you respond to this in a sec, but I think, you know, the fundamental question is if you take your critique seriously, and I think you have to. The critique being the Riker critique ported into this industrial policy argument, which is that the obvious things that you think would make the world a better place uh, actually aren't feasible. 
It's, it's they might not, make the world a better it's place. It's not politically feasible, right? They're not on the table. Don't pretend they're on the. To pretend they're on the table is is to indulge in in, in illusion and delusion. But then it raises the question. So, you know, we look at the world around us. We see things we don't like. Um, when we see it in our spouse, uh, my reaction. Not that you is, ever have, but if you did. No, if I did, right? Of course not. But if I did, I would say, "What do I need to fix about myself?" To make it easier for my wife to be a better person, that would be one way to respond to the imperfection of our marriage. We can think of other ways. Some would not work. Some might improve a little bit, et cetera. So when you look out of the world and, and the, the economic policies and the political policies of the world, you see all this, these discouraging realities. Should one just shrug and say, well, there's nothing can be done. This is the best of all possible worlds because, and this, by the way, is very much Gary Becker's view. He said, you know, the incentives, this is the way the world works. You can talk all you want about how stupid it is or inefficient it is to subsidize agriculture, but it's politically very efficient in certain countries and not in others. So in Japan, agriculture is highly subsidized and in the United States, highly subsidized. And in other places where there are lots of farmers with no political power, not subsidized at all. And you can talk all you want about how that's good or bad, doesn't matter. It's just the way it is. And is that, so is that the lesson? You just kind of shouldn't try to make the world a better place. You're just stuck with the reality because the political incentives are there. If you think you can change those incentives, you're fooling yourself because Riker would say you can't get those passed. Nobody's going to vote for them by the very essence of where, why the current situation is the way it is. So, yeah, that's just just suck it up and take it. Is that your, is that your worldview now? I guess I'm going to plead Buchanan's relatively absolute absolutes. So we, we have to accept, this is James McGill Buchanan, who won the Nobel Prize in 1986, had this view that he called the relatively absolute absolutes. And so- You've talked about it here before. We, we have talked about it here before. Again. <laughs> and the, the, the point of it is, by and large, we probably have to accept existing institutions and existing incentives as they are, because like Samuel Beer said, every system is designed- to produce the outcomes that this system is producing. And by design, I mean in evolutionary terms. Okay. So the, the, the idea of design is over time, it has come to produce these outcomes and not some others. So uh, Stan Weiner, uh, the Canadian uh, public choice economist, has written a lot about the tax code. And said that any attempt to change the tax code or to point out, you know, the tax code's really complicated. Uh, we should change it. It's going to run into bootlegger and Baptists' uh, problems because our tax code in the U.S. is complicated for exactly the reason that it serves politically the set of interests that benefit from having a, a complicated tax code. So all of that's true. But to say, you know, we can never do anything is kind of nihilism. So I, I accept that, but then that's the not relatively absolute, absolute parts. I think we can talk about policy changes. And Milton Friedman thought this too, that if you have a ready off the shelf set of policy changes and there's a crisis. So if there's a crisis, sometimes you get an opportunity to suggest, you know, there is a radically different policy proposal and we might be able to do this. So I would say getting rid of all industrial policies. And 
just recognizing that the Robert Pindyke did a uh, econ talk not long ago where he gave he advocated for um, carbon tax. And you said, you know, we can't really be sure that that's better. A carbon tax would mean that we would make fossil fuels more expensive and alternative energies, we don't know which one, are likely to be relatively more competitive. And the result is that maybe it's solar, maybe it's wind, maybe it's a particular kind of battery for electric vehicles. We don't know which one. We're going to let ourselves work that out. So the industrial policy would be, let's choose solar and spend a lot of money on that. The economic policy would be let's tax carbon and then profit and loss will tell us whether wind or solar or some other alternative energy is the best way to do it. So uh, I, I'm sorry, that was a long answer. I think the relatively absolute absolutes part is to say normally, by and large, you should be skeptical of utopian solutions. However, if you have something like a carbon tax, as imperfect as it is, at least then, contingent on that, you're relying on a set of profit and loss signals to tell us which of these alternative energies is best. Yeah, and I guess I got to point out here, as, as you know, that we don't have a carbon. We, have, we actually have, we have a little bit of a carbon tax. We, we do tax gasoline in the United States. Uh, we also subsidize uh various forms of, of carbon in various ways. <clears throat> and strangely enough, those are not designed by economists. What I'm trying to say is the carbon tax of your dreams is not on the table <laughs> for exactly the reasons we've been talking about. So is advocating for it a kind of uh, form of um, quixotic? Yes, yes. But that's why the relatively absolute absolutes is okay. Sometimes you have to try. Sometimes you can't just say everything is hopeless. I'm willing to die on the carbon tax hill because I think it's better than all of the other dumb policies. California recently, because of high gas prices, sent every owner of uh, a gasoline-powered car a $400 check. And when you were talking to Mark Andreessen about this, uh, the Mark Andreessen was incredulous. You know, I, I don't really need $400, but thanks very much. If you rode your bike and you didn't have a car, you didn't get the $400 subsidy. If you had an electric vehicle, you didn't get the $400 subsidy. So stop doing stupid stuff and subsidizing petroleum fuels would be a good start. So the, the, we don't have to have a carbon tax necessarily. We should just stop all of the many subsidies that we have for the perpetuation of gasoline. You but might, that's, like telling, that's like telling Argentinians, stop cheating on your taxes. Just pay them. <laughs> relatively absolute absolutes. I am willing to say sometimes we have to try, even if it's quixotic. I'm going to try a different approach. We can end on this. The problem I really have with your perspective, which, of course, fundamentally I agree with more or less, but I want to emphasize the less for a minute. Political science is not a science. Equilibrium analysis is useful. It's provocative. It's not truth. Uh, and it's not just that we grope toward the equilibrium. Our, our, the whole idea of an equilibrium which, by the way, is a way of saying that unless – an equilibrium is the idea that if, if nothing else changes, nothing else will change, right? So the outcomes we get, they're the ones we're stuck with. 
uh, unless there's a change in population or there's a change in something, quote, exogenous, something outside the model. And of course, nothing's really outside the model. And the truth is, is that the world doesn't work exactly like economists or political scientists say it works. In other words, the underlying processes are not the same. And so, therefore, if we look at, say, the political outcomes of the last 10 years, which are the political outcomes of the last 10 years, which are rather extraordinary uh, in terms of how different they are than the previous 10 years. For me, the lesson I've learned from that is that we don't understand politics. We don't have a real model of how political outcomes emerge from the institutions that we are currently saddled with or blessed with, depending on your perspective, right? So people don't always vote their economic interests. Uh, Some models assume they do, but those models are not accurate. They're not 100% accurate. And sometimes social movements lead to change that is unanticipated. Sometimes there is something called leadership. A person steps forward with a vision and manages to convince a bunch of people to do things that otherwise they wouldn't have done. Maybe it's to establish a, a... an independent central bank. Maybe it changes the culture. Maybe it's um, to get people to to uh, an, an issue that was wasn't salient to suddenly be at the front of people's minds and motivate them to vote in a certain way. And yes, many times those outcomes are worse than we had before, but sometimes they could be better. We could imagine it. So for me, it's not so quixotic as it sounds. I think sometimes. Uh, our models of, of political outcomes are not as reliable as as we would uh, as we would sometimes contend. So change is possible, and we get it, even when it's not a good change. It's not like I'm not sure the world's moving in the right direction, um, but I'm not. Sure, I don't think I don't think the economists or pol- political scientists' views of the political process and the institutions we currently have are uh, anything like our models of, say, planetary motion. So that's what I would say. Our models are certainly not anything like our models of planetary motion. And I guess I see that where we may disagree is I see that as a result. So political science is a science to the extent that it should teach us humility about the ability to go from interests to some aggregate outcome that represents those things in equilibrium. The equilibrium that I'm talking about is, uh, if, if, if reference a paper in the, um, in my paper that I think is really important and is under-recognized, I think it's really fundamentally important, is a paper by uh, Gary Cox, Douglas North, and Barry Weingast, in which they argue for something they call the proportionality theorem. And the proportionality theorem is that institutional changes that have a distribution of power that are different from the de facto distribution of power on the ground are always going to fail either because they won't pass or there will be a coup or some kind of violence or lack of enforcement. And that I think explains, uh, well, it explains what happened in Egypt. So in Egypt, they had a constitution after a long military government and they tried to implement a set of changes. The president went too far in asserting the power of the presidency, and there was immediately another military coup. So all of Tahrir Square, all of the, you look at the effects of Arab Spring, they ignored the Cox, North, and Weingast proportionality theorem. Now, that's not a how-to, that's a constraint. 
So I would say that I think political science does tell us that there are constraints on what we can reasonably hope to accomplish through politics. You should be humble. You should recognize that, you, that this thing you think you can do, not only probably you can't, it may make things worse. And so you should have a more constrained vision, to use Thomas Sowell's phrase, of what can be accomplished in politics. So that's really what I want to argue with this paper about industrial policy. Even if it were true, and I think it's not, but even if it were true, that experts knew the right set of subsidies and taxes, the right set of industries to declare be winners, and the ones that should be losers. You should be really humble about creating a politically powerful organization that could implement your vision because it is uncontrolled. It is likely to use those powers for things you do not intend. And that's why we have to settle for what looks like a really bad alternative, which is democracy, which is really frustrating. You have to persuade people. You can't impose the right thing on them. So that if political science teaches us, and I think it does, that there are constraints that should limit our sense that we can accomplish the good, then political science has actually served some kind of function. My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.